Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Welcome back to our podcast. Today, a super exciting episode. My guest today is Sammy Timimi, a consultant, child, and adolescent psychiatrist in the National Health Service in Lincolnshire and a visiting professor of child psychiatry and mental health improvement at the University of Lincoln in the UK. He writes from a critical psychiatry perspective on topics relating to mental health and childhood and has published over 130 articles and tens of chapters on many subjects, including childhood, therapy, mental health services, and culture. He has authored six books, including Naughty Boys, Antisocial Behavior, ADHD, and the Role of Culture. And he's co-edited four books, including with Jonathan Lee, Rethinking ADHD from Brain to Culture. His latest book, Insane Medicine, How the Mental Health Industry Creates Damaging Treatment Traps and How You Can Escape Them, is now available in serialized form on the Mad in America website, as well as for purchase on Amazon. In 2004, Sammy Timimi spearheaded and co-endorsed the creation of a critique of the international consensus statement on ADHD, essentially the powerful rebuttal of such statement led by Russell Barkley. I'm excited and I feel very honored to have as my guest today, Sammy Timimi. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. My pleasure completely. I'm so excited uh, about this episode. I've been waiting for a while. You're a busy man. So I just want to say thank you again for making time. And I'm going to take us back with the time machine. So where did you get interested or how did you get interested in ADHD? It um, really goes back to the time that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist and I was uh, training to become a consultant, uh, which is the top tier of uh, in, in professional terms in, in your career. And um, this is going back to the early to mid 1990s in the UK. And um, at that time, there was very little interest in what uh, was being called ADHD. In this country, it was called hyperkinetic syndrome, and it was thought of as a very rare condition. And we didn't often diagnose it or, or uh, have that much of an interest in this being seen as a much more of a very rare condition. Um, but in the early to mid-1990s, it started coming into the UK, and there were uh, things in the press, as well as in the professional circles, talking about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And at the time where my interest really got going, I was on a placement, uh, and my supervising consultant, uh, this was in East London, was very interested uh, in this topic. So he asked me if I wanted to join him in uh, a little research project looking at ideas around the prevalence and presentation of ADHD within the local population. And so my job was to go and look at the literature. 
and and do uh, and do some sort of literature review. So um, off I went, and I started uh, looking at the available literature of the time. And I started. Um, I, I did it in a in a proper formal way, doing going to the different databases we have, looking up the different. Uh, types of words that we use to do ser academic searches, getting hold of papers, reading through them. But I kept being frustrated because I just came across paper after paper that was talking about ADHD and talking about it as if it was an already known thing. So the starting point of all these papers, these reviews about prevalence, about presentation, about treatment, about possible causes, they all started from an idea that ADHD is a known and knowable thing. And I found this very frustrating because I was just trying to get a handle on what is ADHD? Surely it's not just what it says in the title. Surely it's just not attention deficit and hyperactivity. Where did you get this idea from that it's attention deficit and hyperactivity? Where did you get the idea from that this represents something discrete, something knowable, something that can be categorized? And for me, there was something really missing in this idea that you can take a set of descriptions, which were all subjective, and make the leap into an assumption that these descriptions that whoever it is who'd come across this and developed this is a natural entity that exists in the same way as other medical uh, categories. So it was it was that process of doing this extensive literature review that start, got me asking assumptions, uh, basic questions about what are the assumptions that underpin this idea? And that really started me on a journey into beginning to question the assumptions of a whole range of psychiatric categories. And um, the, the more I got involved in looking at um, uh, ADHD and getting familiar with, uh, because you know our background in, in training is a training also to look at and understand the scientific literature. So I, I started spending a lot more time looking at the scientific literature, trying to answer that question, what is ADHD? How do you come to the point of view that this is a known or even a knowable category and that has something characteristic about it that makes it possible to identify it, to think of it as a disorder, and to develop um, technical know-how, including prevalence, outcomes, prognosis, treatment, and all the sorts of things that you, you do associate with developing technical know-how. So those that was my kind of first starting step. And, it, and I do remember going to my consultant after uh, several months of doing this and sitting there uh, saying to him in, in, in this very quizzical manner, I, I still can't get my head around. What, what is this? What is ADHD? What, what are we talking about here? Surely you're not just telling me it's just this 
presentation, this very subjective presentation. Um, how it developed from there was um, that kind of started me thinking, um, and, I, and I, I was encouraged by my next supervising consultant, who was, was something of a mentor for me, it turned out, who's also a, a well-known family therapist. And he encouraged me to put these thoughts and, and, and start writing these ideas down. So I, I developed a paper on that and tried submitting it to several journals, but it wasn't the zeitgeist at the time. The zeitgeist was that this developing idea of um, ADHD as a natural con medical condition that was known, that has characteristic features and so on. Um, but from there, I, I started to do presentations and, uh, uh, and, and found that a lot of other people were asking similar questions and, and had similar concerns. And, and gradually, I guess that, that sort of started getting me in touch with other people around the world who had these questioning perspectives. And when you say other people, that I would imagine includes parents, adults with ADHD, not just experts or authors and right, but just people who were like, something is fishy here. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting how that further developed. You've kind of reminded me that um, in my first consultant job, which again was uh, in East London, and this is now going towards the end of the 90s, and, and ADHD has now sort of expanded its presence uh, in the UK. Um, we had some money to set up an ADHD clinic. So it was what, it was the first ADHD clinic set up in, in East London at the time. So I, I became the consultant to that clinic. And um, I worked alongside, we had a pediatrician who did um, screening for various physical conditions. And we also had some family therapists and, and uh, other people who were thinking more systemically. And we started going out into the community around us and, and realizing that there was a diversity of opinions and also a diversity of presentations. So um, we got to know our local schools, and we had some of the schools who were who were very concerned about this growing idea of uh, ADHD, and were very adamant that they had uh, processes and ways of helping children and young people who might present with various behavioral challenges. Um, and then we had some other schools who were sort of sending in quite a few referrals. And I and I and I remember an incident that really taught me something about the social processes that start growing up around these types of concepts, because we noted uh, in our team that we had um, uh, a lot had quite a few referrals coming from this particular school. And so we started to wonder, what might that be about? And we, we arranged a visit and went to see a very nice, um, but rather stressed head teacher. And we found out that this was a school um, that was really struggling. It was under some sort of special measures. 
It had a very high staff turnover. People, the teachers weren't staying very long. And I remember sitting in in, in uh, one of the classes to try and observe one of the young people that they'd referred, who they were asking, does this person have ADHD? Could they do with treatment? And um, they didn't stand out from the class at all. The, the, the teacher was, was really struggling in this class with a whole range of pupils. And it got you to kind of realize that once you've labeled one of the people in that class with ADHD and perhaps giving them medication, and so moved the problem away from the arena of education towards the arena of, of, of um, medicine, then the next thing that would happen is another person from that class would, would come, and then another. And so we start, I really started to get a flavor of some of the social dynamics that start to build up around a concept like that and around the idea of who's responsible for helping these young people. And we had similar things with parents. We had some parents who, who were uh, understandably desperate and felt that this was something that would provide them a way with a way forward. And we had other parents who were presenting to us and saying that they feel really upset that the, the school have said that they need to go and seek help and that their child possibly has this condition. So we have we started to see this very varying presentations and different ways these concerns were manifesting themselves. So in essence, what you're what I'm hearing is, and for the parents listening, uh, we have our most uh, I would say the highest percentage of listeners are parents that have children with ADHD or they just got a diagnosis or their friend told them about it. And what I'm hearing already, what I'm starting to hear, which is also what you're pointing to in, in your rebuttal that we'll talk about, but also that the, uh, you know, Russell Barkley and team in their consensus statement actually says is not really the influence, which is environment, right? Is, which is the stress, the anxiety at school, at, at home, in culture, right? So there's all this, uh, this stress coming at these young people. And that's, that to me has got to have a huge impact. I mean, you saw it in the classroom, right? Yeah, yes. Um, so I would want to take it a step back even from that. So we can get very caught up with the nature versus nurture debate. And we can end up with uh, going around in circles with that debate. But I want to take it even a step back before that, because um, as I began to understand more about the nature of um, how we come to categorize what we categorize, and um, this kind of takes you a little bit into the philosophy of science. And I'll try and simplify it so that, that people might understand what I mean by taking it a step back. So in, in order to navigate our way around the world, we use systems of classification. Language in, in itself is a system of classification. And classifications allow us a kind of a shorthand so that we, rather than describing that I was stuck with 
in a situation where there were hundreds of cars in front of me waiting at the traffic lights. And I would just say I was stuck in a traffic jam. You know, that's an example of a, of a way of classifying to, um, uh, to, to, to make a shorthand for understanding things. But different systems of classification are based on different principles. So in medicine, we have a system of classification called diagnosis. Now, diagnosis is a system of classification by cause. That's why when you go to the doctor and you've got a cough, you don't expect your doctor to just talk to you and then say, oh, you've got a recurrent cough disorder. You expect them to listen to your chest, maybe take an x-ray if that's needed, um, uh, maybe uh, invest, uh, look at your peak flow, because they need to understand the uh, initial cause, the proximal cause of that cough, because depending on the cause, your treatment is going to be different. So if you've got a chest infection, you don't want to treat it with a steroid inhaler because that will make it infinitely worse. You follow me? So a system of diagnosis is classification by cause. Now, when we call something uh, a diagnosis in psychiatry, we're breaking all of those rules. And this is what causes huge confusion to people because um, people assume when you get a diagnosis like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that you have identified the cause of that person's difficulty with paying attention or their level of activity. Um, that's what people assume, but actually it's not the case. If you look at how you do the diagnosis, it's based purely on a description. It's a description of what we're thinking of as symptoms, but even thinking of it as symptoms is putting us into the wrong framework. We're just describing sets of behaviors. That's all we're doing. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is literally the behaviors that are listed in the diagnostic manuals that point to what is assumed to be uh, difficulty paying attention, levels of activity, with the word disorder behind it. Yeah. You don't find the word disorder after asthma. You don't find the word disorder after diabetes. You don't find the word disorder after um, heart failure. That's that you put the word disorder in to try and turn it into a medical condition, but you don't see that in the rest of medicine. I love that. I love that step back. And thanks for doing that because I'm, I'm with you right there for two reasons. One is I, I told someone the other day, I said, you don't have ADHD because you have ADHD. And they were like, what are you talking about? I have ADHD. And I said, well, no one has it because it is a, in my language, it was a made up term, right? I, I looked up uh, the DSM three was, I think it was eight people led by one. So nine people in a room making yep. up these labels. So it doesn't even exist. It's not a thing. And I think that's where people already lose you because it really takes a critical mind to go like, okay, tell me more. And I love what you said, which is 
well, then we're describing a set of symptoms. And even these symptoms, they're being observed by human beings that have subjective, right? Exactly. They have influences. Exactly. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, you're, you're, you're getting what I'm talking about. So actually, we have a classification by description. And those descriptions are subjective. We have no recourse to anything that is external to the imagination of the diagnoser. So uh, as I was giving the example before about somebody who presents with a cough, an X-ray requires interpretation, but it exists there in an empirical sense beyond my imagination. There's nothing that exists beyond my imagination when I decide that this meets the threshold for a certain type of behavior to call it a symptom. As I say, I don't think we should be calling these symptoms. It makes, uh, it makes you assume that this is um, in a irrefutable way belongs to a dysfunction of some sort in the person's body. But actually, we have no recourse to discover that. And so what we end up with is what's philosophically known as a tautology. A tautology is a peculiar type of circular thinking. And I can demonstrate that by simply walking you through a very simple truism. If I have somebody coming to me as a, a doctor saying that my child is hyperactive and has difficulty paying attention, what's causing that doctor? And I was to say, well, that's caused by ADHD. A legitimate question for that person to ask is then, well, how do you know it's caused by ADHD? And I would say, I know it's caused by ADHD because they have poor attention and hyperactivity. The definition is a descriptive one. A description cannot cause itself. It's like saying, um, uh, you're going to the doctor and the doctor says, uh, and, and you say, I've got a pain in my head. And the doctor says to you, well, the pain in the head is caused by a headache. You know, it's it's a circular it's it's a circular thinking. Uh, so ADHD cannot exist as something people have, in the same way that a broken leg. You can see a broken leg on the X-ray. You can see a fracture, and while that fracture is there, the person has a fracture of the tibia, for example, one of the bones in the leg. Once it's healed they no longer have uh, a, a fracture of the tibia. You cannot say that about ADHD. You cannot have ADHD. You can only have, in the, that literal sense, ADHD while you're demonstrating that behavior. As soon as you sit down and, and play a computer game and you're concentrating fine, ADHD has disappeared because it's a description. Yeah, and that's... It's not, it's not something that exists beyond the imagination of the person making the diagnosis. It doesn't I, exist out there in the in the concrete world of people's bodies or minds. I love that. Thanks for that example. I think that's very simple and beautiful. And I've been saying this, our son was diagnosed uh, now seven years ago. And uh, the main thing was hyperactivity and impulsivity. 
And six years later now, uh, without medication, um, he no longer has those symptoms. So the behavior has disappeared because we've completely restructured the environment of the family to pull out any additional friction, distraction, like just harmonized it to a degree where his nervous system was able to calm down and those symptoms are gone. And that's contrary to the other side who says, oh, you'll have it for life. And it's like, what? First of all, you don't have it. And for life is a very doomsday prophecy to hear for a parent, right? That's that's akin to a hypnotic suggestion. You see, here's here's another difference between um, what we're calling psychiatric diagnosis, and and this is not just for ADHD, but right up into into the psychoses, you know, uh, at the severe end to the mild end. why it's a hypnotic suggestion is because if I read out your kidney function tests to you, you know, your, your urea, your creatinine, and all of those things that indicate how well your kidney is functioning, your kidney doesn't um, step back in alarm and decide to desert you or look for reassurance or start becoming anxious about the future. Yeah? Kidney function tests. It's out there. Um, But if I was to tell you that what you're talking about now is the result of a paranoid delusion that you have, that you think you're better than the medics, that's going to have an effect on you. As opposed to if I told you, oh, that's a breath of fresh air, the way you're thinking about this. So, um, So what we say about our subjective opinion about people's subjective lives has an impact on them. These are not neutral things. To say to somebody, you have this disorder, and I'm calling it a disorder, and I'm calling these symptoms, and that you're going to have it for the rest of your life, that's a very powerful hypnotic suggestion to make. Yeah. And it's very dangerous, and I think it's very destructive. Yeah, we talk about this a lot. You know, uh, I've heard this is funny. I've heard people say, well, the label isn't bad because now I know what's quote unquote wrong with me and why I can't function. Right. And I told this uh, a guest I had a while back. I said, well, that's okay, perhaps for an adult to reason with. Right. But as a six year, seven year old, all you hear is your brain's broken or you're less than you're not normal. And that's very damaging. I agree. I think that's a that's a very heavy end thing. Um, so I've got very interested in the science, and I've been following the science, and I, and I think I have a very good grasp on what's going on. I've been following what they're doing with the neuroimaging. I've been following what they're doing with the gen- genetics, and they're, as far as I can see, the cupboards are totally empty on anything characteristic. But it it has got me interested in going beyond that and thinking about the culture, because you raised, you know, you're raising that question now about what is the impact when we, as a culture, start labeling certain children's and other people's, you know, adults' behaviors as being in, um, as being considered as neurologically abnormal and potentially lifelong. What is that telling us about our culture? 
What are we setting people up for? And, and I have a sense, uh, so this is much more theoretical and subjective. I'm not claiming that this is should be sat there as an objective truth. But where I'm um, sitting, it looks to me that this is becoming a symptom of a culture that's become increasingly intolerant of childishness and children. We seem to want them to function at a much more developed level and much quicker. And according to some sort of uh, preconceived timetable, uh, so that it feels to me like as a culture, in order to get some value as you grow up, you have to do things, you have to perform in some way, rather than you just valued for being. And, and I think that produces a whole lot of anxieties for both parents, because parents then feel judged themselves a lot of the time, and also for children. So I think it's become just harder than ever to feel like you're a normal parent and to feel like you're a normal kid. Just, uh, you know, growing up in the way, in, in whatever diverse way with whatever range of skills and, and other bits that are not so good about you. Um, it, it's become harder and harder. And, and I, I kind of worry about that because I feel like um, this generation of children are just the most pathologized generation ever. I mean, that's that can't be great to grow up with this way of monitoring and looking at children through this critical eye, looking for things to worry about, things to be concerned about, so that children can't just develop in whatever haphazard way that children usually developing well i guess it's this standardization or this normalization right that that it's easier to control a, a group when everyone is on the same pace the same grade the same results the same behavior then it's easier for like you said for the teacher to manage a classroom or for the employer to have the factory workers all look forward and do their job and there's less disruption to the machinery so it's become a machinery almost again, like back in the factory days, right? And I agree with you. It's it's sad to see that that we're stuffing our kids with these uh, irregular shapes into all into the square holes. You know, mm. it's yeah. it's pathetic. Is really the word how I feel about it. And how did you how did you stomach all that? I would imagine um, this is a total side note, but when I watch the experts on the other side, the ones that are behind the Russell Barclays and crew. Um, I watched hundreds, thousands of videos and they always seem angry and cocky. That's my observation. And all the experts I've talked to in, in, in what I call our camp, which is thriving, I call the other ones coping. And here in camp thriving, I feel even just talking to you, there's a, there's a level of empathy and, and, and true commitment to make a difference for, for our children. And, and there's a love that I just don't see on the other side. I don't see the true commitment to help these children. That's my observation. That's not the truth, right? So I just want to ask, how did you 
stomach seeing all this lack of evidence? How did you, or what did it take for you to say, you know what, this is it. I have to do, I have to step up to this madness. And if I'm jumping ahead, excuse me, but I'm just so excited because I can sense, you know, there had to be a point where you're like, okay, guys, I have, I have enough evidence to say, stop the madness. Right. Yeah. Um, from a clinical point of view, um, I, I guess um, once you manage to step back from an idea that what you're what you're doing can be fitted neatly into a technical process, um, you see, I can see the appeal. I, I have lots of colleagues. Um, uh, psychiatrists and, and therapists and, and I can see the appeal of an approach that is you know I collect the symptoms I make a diagnosis I prescribe a treatment and there's there's something that makes you feel uh, like you're a sort of scientist doctor but it's 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 so uh, um, as I say once you start looking at the assumptions behind that you realize you're um, you're, you're in a process that is always at risk of dehumanizing. It's always at risk of turning people, the multiplicity of people's lives into a caricature. Um, but it's one of those things that you have to learn how you're going to adapt in your practice, because I inherit a lots of people who've... Um, already had a diagnosis maybe from a pediatrician or from another psychiatrist or um, and they've already been cultured into that way of thinking and to try and bring uh, a, a bit of a, a bit of a different gaze onto those young people and for those families I mean it depends obviously on, on the person the family it's meant trying to find new ways to open up the possibility for different ways of imagining, understanding, and working with. So one of the things I do, for example, is I say, well, there are thousands of different types of ADHD. I want to hear a bit more about your ones. And the other thing that um, I've got a lot better at as the years have gone on, and I've as I've realized that, um, you know, people, as they grow up, everybody is better at certain things and learn certain things quicker and then struggle with other things. I mean, that's the case for everybody. God, it would be a boring world if we all, if we all came out in, you know, good at the same things and, and, and bad at the same things. So I do spend a lot of time <clears throat> and it's just actually asking simple questions, like asking a parent, what makes you proud of your son or your daughter? What is it that you love about? what they do what are they good at asking them what do they enjoy doing uh, and you know people people can bring drawings they do or show me how good they are on a certain game or and it just opens up the idea that we develop our skills at different rates so you're no longer thinking that this is a disorder because as soon as you start thinking that this is an abnormality your treatments is about trying to control or suppress these so-called symptoms. But that's 
why why would you want to do that? Some of these things that we think of as symptoms might also be strengths in certain uh, contexts. Um, sometimes they do get them into trouble. <clears throat> so you can think of that as just a, a skill that maybe might take them a bit longer to learn. So how what might help you to learn that skill? What are the skills that you want them to learn? What are the skills that you want to learn? Um, and who says, right? Like who says getting yeah. in trouble is bad? That's also a form of learning to it get is. in trouble, be is. in trouble, right? It's yeah. part of life. Of course, yeah. of course it is. And once you open up and start um, in understanding that your work doesn't involve putting people into these boxes that nobody really fits into, and, um, and, and you can start hearing the different stories that people come up with, you start realizing that for different people, there are different challenges. For some families, it's the it's it's a problem with how they're fitting in with certain teachers and and what's going on in that school and and what maybe extra educational support they might need for other ones you know they've been exposed to domestic violence when they were younger and now the parents are separated and they and uh, they're they're um um uh, the you know the the uh, parent is is worried about them turning out violent and starts to view them in a certain way and maybe we, we need some time to work through those traumatic experiences for others it, it might be a, a question of of um what's happening in the family dynamics in terms of um you know insecurities around housing um I, I have uh, families where there's a parent who's been abusing substances and they've had to live with their grandparents. And then I have other uh, other um, situations where there is an, an undiagnosed lactose intolerance has gone on for many years. And, uh, you know, people didn't realize that they were just feeling irritable in there. So as, once you take a step back and start thinking beyond the idea that there is this simple category that if you shift, if you shuffle them into this, then your job is to suppress these symptoms instead of using it as information, understanding what the broader story is, um, taking account of of all the strengths of the of the great things that they they have on offer. Um, and one of my experiences is that um, I've picked up many cases over the years. Who come who come to uh, yourself as as a consultant because they've been um, diagnosed, they've been treated, they're on medication, but actually the problems just keep coming back. So you know nothing has really shifted in that in that long term sense, and um, and and sometimes it turns to be really simple stuff, just helping parents with. Um, a few ways of of maybe not getting drawn into arguments every time. You know, sometimes it's just actually simple stuff that 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 can make a difference. Yeah, that's uh, you know, obviously there isn't. I think there isn't one root cause because, like you said, there's so many different types of. I call it, you know, children feeling unsafe or not grounded where they're at in the environment, whether it's school or home or all of it. And, and I think a lot of the, this is just my 
layman's term is like there's a there's an overdiagnosis of a form of of PTSD. It's some post-traumatic stress that this could be over time, could be one event. And then a lot of these kids just get thrown into the ADHD bucket. And it's, I think it's sad to see that, you know, and medication becomes the, uh, I, my wife and I call it the check engine light, right? The, the, the child that's diagnosed is the check engine light. And then if we just put a piece of tape over it, yeah, we no longer see the check engine light, but we're not really fixing the engine or not fixing. We're not addressing what's going on with the engine. Right. And I think that's what's happening a lot is kids just get um, subdued or, you know, essentially. Yeah. Well, as I say, if you go back to the assumptions and, um, uh, you know, get beyond this idea of nature v. nurture <clears throat> and understand that uh, actually this is this is what um, this is a classic case of a social construct. Um, what you end up doing in what you consider to be treatment in this way of thinking is an attempt to control or suppress particular types of behaviors. That's That becomes what treatment amounts to. And that's such a narrow way of thinking about um, people who are growing up. So at what cost are you uh, because the, the problem is not just whether the treatments um, manage to achieve that, suppress or control certain behaviors, but what does it mean in terms of how you end up viewing yourself, how, you, how parents end up viewing their child, what is it that they start to see now, and in what way do they start to see it, and teachers and, uh, and everybody else? And what does that mean for that person's future? Yeah, it's almost like we're giving we're giving these experts or psychologists, psychiatrists and teachers a new pair of glasses that are purple. And now they're seeing all these kids that stand out as purple. And they go, yep, you're, you got you got the purple disease. You got the purple disease, you know, and. Yep. We're not really looking at them for for, for their developmental stage like or say, unique. Mm -hmm. They become a caricature. You start seeing them from a certain perspective, on the lookout for certain types of behaviors mm. or certain types of. Um, so they become problematized very early in their life, mm. viewed as as uh, as having some sort of condition. And I guess then they can live up to that, right? They can be become Absolutely. the problem child. They can become the disruptor and they own it. And they're like, F you, I guess that's yeah. who I am. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so perhaps uh, take us to, and this is fascinating stuff. And I just, I'm so excited uh, about, you know, you, you're really breaking this down. You're, we're splitting atoms here. And I love when that happens because we often just, you know, for parents, it goes over their head when, when, when I say, ADHD is made up, uh, they go, well, what do you mean it doesn't exist? Well, I'm not saying the struggle isn't real, but the label is made up. Well, no, you're saying it's fake. No, you know, it, it just becomes this weird wordplay. And then I, you've given me some really great examples and our listeners for sure. I hope that these examples land the same way they did for me because it simplifies it. You know, oh, one question I had for you. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Amen, who is sort of 
carved out a niche in the ADHD world by essentially uh, uh, taking brain scans uh, while injecting children with right radioactive substance. And I know this sounds horrible, but that's exactly what it is, right? Of course, there's small doses. So there was an attempt, I think, by a, a, a doctor or a, a psychologist to say, well, we actually do have some form of a medical biological proof, but the only proof to me, what that was is like at that moment in time, when you take a scan of a brain, whether the levels are up or down, it's just a snapshot. And if we're then comparing that to normal brains, of course, there's a variant because every brain is different every moment of the day. Right. So what, what do you think of that whole trying to uh, biologize or, you know, give it a, a medical uh, backup for this claim of such technique? Shall I try and talk you through then the science of of ADHD and and see if I can again? I would love that. You in a fairly simplified way that hopefully most people will understand. That would be fantastic. Yeah. It, um, the idea that ADHD is a genetic and neurodevelopmental, in other words, to do with the development of the nervous system condition is based on two types of research. The first is genetics and the second is brain imaging. The, um, the idea that it's a genetic condition started out from mainly twin studies. That's the main basis. There are some other ones, but the other ones fall apart quite easily because they can't differentiate genetic from environmental um, causes. <clears throat> but the main one is, that they rely on is the idea that identical twins more often both have ADHD compared to non-identical twins. And the idea is because identical twins share 100% of the genetic material, whereas non-identical twins share on average about 50% of the genetic material, um, because identical twins more often um, uh, are diagnosed with the same condition, that is good proof that it is a genetic condition. But this relies on a idea that their environments of identical and non-identical twins are identical, that they share the same environments. But actually all the studies on twins regardless of whether they have a condition or not, shows that psychologically being one of an identical twin is very different to being one of a non-identical twin. So identical twins often play games to, you know, to, to confuse uh, other people when they're kids. They're often dressed in the same clothes. They're, uh, they, they tend to have very different types of relationships to one if, if you're a non-identical twin, which basically means that method cannot differentiate the genetic component. The only way you can um, uh, come to conclusions about the genetic component is through molecular genetics, looking at the actual genomes. And since we um, transcribed the whole human genome, whole genome scans have got cheaper and easier to do and quicker to do. So um, 
the the larger genetic studies started coming out around the 2008 2010 in 2010 there was a big study that hit the headlines and it was looking for something called copy number variants which are bits of genetic code that are repeated where they shouldn't be or deleted where they should be and the headlines went around the world saying that children in this sample of about 450 children with a with a diagnosis of ADHD, 14%, um, 14.7% had these uh, copy number variants. But in the healthy control group, which was about 1,000 children, uh, only 7% um, had that. So this went around the world, claimed that we've got... Uh, um, proof is what the um, what the lead researcher um, said that uh, this is a, a a genetic condition. But if you looked at their results, and this has became very typical of the sorts of things that happened in the in in the world of research. If you looked at their results, the um, uh, they when you they did. I, um, intelligence quotient tests. I don't know if you're aware of IQ tests. It, this is just yes, yes. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a, a, a measure used to measure your intellectual ability. So they use it to to screen for um, learning difficulties in this country. So there was a group of children who had an IQ below seven. So the normal IQ or the average IQ rather is a hundred. And if you have an IQ below 70, you're considered to have learning difficulties. Um, so when they um, looked at the young people in this sample with ADHD who also had an IQ below 70, they found that 36% of them had copy number variants. Now, if you looked at the rest of the sample, the number with copy number variants was down to around 11%. So we're now only about 4% above the um, control group. However, even then, the average IQ in, in that group of children who'd been diagnosed with ADHD was 86, 14 points below the average of 100, which you would assume the control group had. Now, they could have done a uh, they, which means that they had to control for level of IQ in order to match their sample to the control group because IQ has a much higher likelihood, low IQ, of having copy number variants. Are you following me? Is that making sense? Uh, I'm following you. It's a bit scientific for me, but yeah. I'm with you at least on the uh, on on the breaking it down. Yeah. So basically, um, they didn't control for IQ level, and I think they probably did do a subsample of that because it would be the obvious thing to do. And I reckon they probably, once they controlled for IQ level so that they were comparing an ADHD group with identical average IQ to the control group, they probably found that there was no, no. increase in copy number variance. So actually that study came up with really good evidence that when you get down to the molecular genetics, there is no, the cupboard is empty. There's no yeah. characteristic genetic abnormality. Since then, 
they're, what, what they've tried to do, because they couldn't find these molecular genetics, they were looking for molecular genetics related to dopamine receptors and all the sorts of things that were in their theories and kept coming up with blanks. But what they've done now is they've gone to samples of tens of thousands. They have, they have multiple study sites with samples of tens of thousands. And they are claiming that there are these tiny differences in uh, around 800 genes across the genome. This kind of data fishing tells you that they cannot find anything specific. Most of these studies don't control for IQ. So the differences that there are around are most likely, even those tiny differences are most likely to be accounted for differences in IQ, in, in intellectual level, in other words. So the, the, the headline is, after, um, after we've got to samples of tens of thousands of genetic decoding of, of ADHD diagnosed patients, the cupboard is empty. There are no genes coming out. And if you look at the neuroimaging studies, there are lots of studies that claim to find differences, but the characteristic picture is um, consistently inconsistent. So one group finds some small difference in, a, in, a, in an area called the nucleus accumbens, a little, a little part of the gray matter in the back of the brain. And then another group finds no differences. And then another group finds it's actually on average larger. And this is the picture that's, that's coming out. And again, a lot of these studies don't control for IQ. There was a large, what's, what was called a mega-analysis published in 2017, where they took the um, studies from 26 different sites around the world and combined them all into one big study and claimed to have found these small differences in a, in a few areas, uh, in a number of areas across the brain. Um, but they, they did, in an appendix, publish the IQ level. And then a separate research team came and reanalyzed their data, taking into account the likelihood of controlling for IQ, and came to the conclusion that even these tiny differences disappear. So again, with neuroimaging, the cupboard is empty. Um, now just because, uh, just one yeah. quick statement. Uh, you know, what's really sad to me is that most parents I talk to, somewhere second or third cause or, or reason for them to believe that ADHD is real and that their child has a disorder is usually genetics. And they go, what they hear is it's genetic. And what they actually hear is there's a gene that got passed down from me or my husband to my child and it ends there. And yeah. what I'm hearing is that is at, at all levels, completely not uh, backed it's, up by science. So so um, again, to go back to first principles in the scientific methodology, the basics of scientific methodology relies on the principle of falsifiability. It basically means you start with an assumption that whatever hypothesis you put forward is not true until you can prove that it cannot not be true. Does that make sense? 
So you, yep. the scientific method relies on the idea of you start with an assumption that your hypothesis is not true, and then you can you have to prove that the hypothesis that it's not true can't be true. This is called the null hypothesis. It's the basis of scientific findings. That's the, how we build up knowledge, because an essential part of scientific methodology is skepticism. You don't accept an idea until you've proved that that um, you start with the assumption your idea can't be true until you prove that that's not the case. That's that's so great. With, yeah. yeah. So with ADHD, you have to start with the assumption that there are no genetics. And then you have to prove that that can't be true. It's it's incorrect, which is what Barclay et al. do. It's incorrect to, to uh, uh, ask a critic to prove that there's no genes involved. It's the other way around. It's not up to me or any other critic. That is mm. not an understanding of the scientific process. The same with, with brain imaging. So what we can say from a scientific point of view, there are no genes and there is no brain differences, no characteristic brain differences. That's why people don't routinely do genetic scans. They don't routinely do um, neuroimaging. Mm -hmm. Now you get people who are, as far as I can see, quacks who are making a lot of money on people's um, fascination with the idea that you can look into the brain. And when you do um, what are, what are called um, functional imaging, which is what you were talking about, where you put a, a where where basically you label something and then you can see where the blood is flowing in which parts. Yeah, of like the a brain. tracer. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. What you what you're looking at is is a, a brain in motion. You're looking at a state, not a trait. You can't see what what the 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 traits are you can only so my blood flow is going to look very different when i'm engaged in an interesting conversation with you to if i was uh, rather bored or playing a card game or watching tv or going running or yeah um so yeah. It, it tells us nothing it tells it it tells you nothing but um you know unscrupulous people can make a lot of money by uh, preying on on people's vulnerabilities well, well this i i agree and this might be a good moment to go into uh the consensus um and the rebuttal and i know we don't have that much time and it's a you know the consensus is well they're both about actually the rebuttal is a few pages longer uh, the consensus by Russell Barkley, it's all really uh, the bulk of the paper is just saying, hey, look, we have all these experts and all these studies, right? Uh, how did you, uh, first of all, when it for when the consensus first came out, and just for our listeners, uh, if you're not familiar at all, the international consensus statement on ADHD is basically a, a document that uh, Russell Barkley and many other uh, ex experts, you know, psychologists, uh, scientists, authors, and so forth, created to say, please stop questioning what we say about ADHD, that it's real, that it need medications the most effective, that it's genetic, that environment doesn't have that much to do with it. They really wanted to put a stop to the critics, right? And you guys on the other side are considered the critics, um, even labeled as not real experts and so forth. 
How, when you first read that, walk me through that moment of, of hearing about it, reading it and reacting to what you read. Um, I think of that consensus statement. And, and by the way, there's been at least two further consensus statements. They had a global one. And then there's been one published quite recently. I saw uh, that, again, yeah. Trying to do the same sort of thing. I call it, I've got a bigger one than yours. Yes. My scientist is bigger than your scientist, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a kind of macho, masculine idea that um, puffing your chest out and saying, I don't need to prove anything to you. Um, it's true because we say it's true. And um, the, the thing, it wasn't just the, the language, which maybe they regret since then, because, you know, the, the language was not the sort of language you would expect with people trying to have a scientific discussion. Right. Because, uh, as I say, proper science starts from a position of curiosity and skepticism and the ability to tolerate uncertainty. You can't do science if you decide before you've got anywhere near to where you need to get to with your investigation if you've already decided the conclusion. That's not how science goes. So apart from, apart from you know, the language that they use, which was not uh, of the type that you'd expect from a scientific discussion, um, the way they decided to um, show their evidence was not by actually doing what you do in an academic article, which is you reference where you got your evidence from. They just listed a set of publications. They just listed at the back of the paper, look, we've got all these publications. This is what I mean by a bigger one. And, yeah. and I looked through that list and, and it just reminded me of the story that I gave you right at the start of when I, when my consultant at the time asked me if I wanted to join him in uh, looking at this question. And I went and did this literature review and I came across paper after paper. And I kept asking, where do you get this idea from? Surely you're not telling me attention deficit is just something that you're taking for granted as already established as a fact, as a natural condition, as a, as a, as a category that occurs in nature in the same way that diabetes is. But that's what happened. So, so um, it, it was just the, the sheer arrogance and the lack of, um, the lack of uh, adherence to just the basics of the scientific process and the basics of an academic discussion. But fortunately, you know, by then I had a bit of a network of other people who, who had similar concerns. And so we were able to get together very quickly, actually, a group of us. And, and you know, we put that one together um, quite quickly. Um, but we, yeah. did have, we, did have, we did have quite a struggle with the, um, the journal that had published their consensus. Um, it took a while before they accepted, and they only accepted on the um, uh, condition that Barclay and colleagues can do their rebuttal to our rebuttal, and they wouldn't allow us to do a rebuttal to their rebuttal. But at least we got it out there. Yeah. Wow. That's funny. That sounds like the never ending. Like you said, my scientist is bigger than your scientist and it's just keeps yeah. going. And, 
Um, but I just want to, you know, I will post a link in our show notes, but what I, what I, what I read first on the first page of the consensus, it says we cannot overemphasize the point that as a matter of science, the notion that ADHD does not exist is simply wrong. And perhaps that's also part of your, where you're mentioning the language they used, right? Um, they say all of the major science is just ridiculous, right? And then the words you don't just say that's it; it's decided. You know, we we we've decided it, and it's not up for debate. And stop questioning, right? And I, I like that it continues. All of the major medical associations and government health agencies recognize ADHD as a genuine disorder because the scientific evidence is indicating it is so overwhelming. I'm like. Overwhelming is not a scientific term. But there's no, but you, you see, they didn't reference those statements. They just printed a, a whole lot, which has the same problems as um, as I'd previously encountered. All mm. the references they have assume that first statement that this is true, this is scientific, and it's overwhelming. I mean, it's, many things in life are overwhelming. That doesn't mean that. You know, they're true because they're they're louder or bigger. It's always like, who makes it louder and bigger? What's the interest behind it, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So so then you wrote the rebuttal, you and uh, 33 co-endorsers uh, yeah. in 2004, or came out in 2004. And then there was a rebuttal to your rebuttal. Yeah. And then there have been two uh, um, new uh, consensus statements since, I believe. Now, where is it at today? Where do you feel like what what has come of the consensus and rebuttals? Are they still going back to the same original consensus of like the arguments over? We have overwhelming evidence. Medication's the most effective. It's genetic. Don't question it. Or where, did they add a new angle to to the the latter? It, it, it's 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 the same. It's the same repeated. Uh, attempt. It, it, it's kind of. Um, I think it's. It's significant that they keep needing to write these consensus statements. Um, because the the criticisms not only won't go away, but we've since that statement we've had twenty more year, well nearly twenty more years of research, pulling out nothing pulling out nothing significant there. Uh, and as I say, the scientific um, process means that you cannot assume it's genetic. You cannot assume it's neurodevelopmental until you can show evidence that um, uh, that it is. And, it's, and um, so they are struggling with the same problems. But meanwhile, of course, People have built their careers doing this uh, sort of uh, investigation. They've built institutes, they've got books, they've got courses, they've got studies, they've got research money. Um, uh, so, you know, there's there's a whole industry that they are desperate to try and support. And so th this, this is kind of um, uh, a... a um, Rather, in some ways, it's it's uh, it's sad, but it's it's also worrying 
and um, disturbing in terms of their attempt to control knowledge and to control knowledge not through any discovery or not through putting forward evidence to back it but by an appeal to their authority so these are not evidence-based statements they are eminence-based statements they're to do with their 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 own assumed superiority uh, that, that's, sorry i broke up there that that's what i um have been picking up along the way that there was an authoritarian uh um kind of tone to you know and i don't i'm not one to badmouth I don't want to gossip about people, but it's public knowledge. For example, Russell Barkley, many people don't know this, but his twin brother uh, died in a car crash because he was uh, supposedly had ADHD, was drunk, didn't wear a seatbelt. So piecing that together, I thought to myself, well, it would make sense that 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 you would then be out to, you know, it, you get angry for your to your brother for killing himself, for leaving the family, for whatever the reasons are, you go on a crusade and you prove the brother wrong, you prove yourself right, that you have the answer and you could have stopped it. And why didn't he stop, right? So I'm making this up, but to me, it's psychological profile there that somewhat yeah. fits. And I see that anger and that that sort of drive in some of these experts. And I just don't feel, I don't feel that they're really committed to helping people with ADHD, they're more committed to uh, saying that you have a disorder, there's something wrong with you and you got to fix it or you're going to live a shitty life. That That's what I hear. You know? Well, there, there is this kind of basic concept of um, cognitive dissonance. You might have heard of that. So this idea that once you hold on to a belief and it becomes uh, important in whatever way, financially, personally, in whatever meaningful way to you, it's very hard to take in the evidence that contradicts that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, mean, I think my, my, my professional life would have been much easier if, I, if somehow I managed to convince myself that uh, these, these, there is a condition called ADHD that it has a treatment protocol, that, it, uh, that my job is to collect symptoms, make a diagnosis, and follow a treatment pathway. My job would be so much easier. Mm -hmm. But in all good conscience, I can't do that. It's wrong. I think that's the key word here is conscience. And, you know, again, not to point fingers, but there is a, a, a general... Um, narrative out there that most parents are exposed to when they get a diagnosis, they go on Google, right? Whether they do, what is ADHD? What's the best treatment and so forth. And the problem I think is our society isn't set up to support say single mothers or people who have three children and one has ADHD and they can't function. So they need a bandaid. They need something temporarily, but that then that bandaid then becomes the crutch often for life. And I think that's, I'm not anti-medication. I'm more anti using it as a long-term solution. You know, how do you feel about uh, generally about medication or 
uh, in this case, stimulant drugs uh, for ADHD? Well, I think the evidence is, um, as it stands at the moment, I think it's it's fairly, um, it's reasonably convincing that um, there are evident short-term differences that um, are, appear to be measurable, but that's not because the stimulants are treating anything, but rather because stimulants affect you regardless of whatever diagnosis you want to put. They, they have generic effects. So in the same way that uh, somebody who's, who's uh, shy might find that alcohol lubricates their social imagination a, a little bit, um, right, but it, does, it doesn't make them a type A personality over time, exactly. unless they keep exactly. taking it. Yeah. Now, um, yeah, we, we, we would warn people about trying to solve their shyness by using alcohol. Uh, it might help uh, in the short term here and there. But if you try and use this as your long term crutch, you're going to get into some serious difficulties. Uh, so I think you can make an, uh, an argument that in the short term, there are significant differences, and it is down to the fact that as a stimulants, their psychological effect or their psychoactive effect is a kind of a tunnel vision. So that's why people take um, speed, you know, when they go to the nightclub and get right into music or or why um, university students sometimes um, uh, abuse things like amphetamines and cocaine because it gives you that kind of concentration, because it gives you kind of tunnel vision. So um, children who were having trouble paying attention or were a bit more active, um, once in the classroom, they appear to be more absorbed in what they're doing. However, if you look at the outcomes in terms of the long term, either you find that there are no differences between those, regardless of the initial severity, who, um, who didn't take medication compared to those who did, or you find where there are differences, it's the children who didn't take medication who are doing better three, eight, uh, uh, many years later. Um, so I think this is stuff that parents need to know, because we're not talking about um, uh, smarties here. We're not talking about things that don't have. We're talking about drugs that we would warn adults not to abuse them because they have such major side effects on the body. They interfere with your appetite. They interfere with your growth. They, um, they're, they're, they're highly uh, addictive. They cause problems with your heart. They, um, they, they can cause psychiatric problems. I mean, I've, I've had children who've been put on these, medic, on, on these stimulants and, um, I've, and they've presented to me as a psychiatrist because they're hallucinating. And we re reduce the medication gradually and they stop hallucinating. You know, these were di direct effects of, of, of these types. So, um, you know, we 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 um, in order to try and resolve a problem in the short term, we create a whole new level of potential problems when we start using them in the long term.
Yeah. And, and, you know, there's so many studies and I know that, um, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence out there in the long term that that you could say the other side cherry picks those studies and they use the two year, the three year. But if you go beyond to the four five, six, seven, eight year, which, of course, no parent's going to do, they don't have time. There's no time to research what you and I are researching. Right. Which is kind of why we decided to do this this podcast. Um I just want to, um, you, you have a, the late, a latest book that you uh, wrote and that's currently a serialized version is on madinamerica.com and it's also on Amazon. Can you just tell us uh, what took you from where you are or were with ADHD and, and sort of came to, to write this book and, and what our listeners could find of interest in, in you know, reading your book on, on the website or on Amazon? Yeah, so so actually, I, I have a a couple of books that have come out recently. So Great. one I think Great. you're referring to, which is also on the Mad in America website, is called uh, Insane Medicine. Yes, and um, it, it's it, it's the culmination of looking at um, these questions, which started with ADHD. It moved on to a critique of uh, autism, childhood depression and psychiatric diagnosis uh, in general. And it includes also a critique of, um, uh, and, and it's a very um, empirically supported book. So uh, I go through the empirical uh, evidence uh, as well as help the readers try and understand why there is actually no such thing as a psychiatric diagnosis. A diagnosis is classification by cause but what we have in psychiatry is not diagnosis. And I look at um, culture uh, and the effects of culture. So I, I, I do a bit of speculation around culture and politics. Um, I also do a critique of psychotherapies, not just a critique of medication. Um, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that the most of the things that we call psychotherapy or, or most of the more commonly used approaches that we call um, branded psychotherapies are just elaborations of what I would call Western folk psychology. So if you look at things like cognitive behavioral, when you pare it down to its basic assumptions, it has the idea that your thinking is affecting the way you feel. And it appeals to a kind of logic that you try and change the way you think so that you look at the world differently. This is very congruent with a kind of management culture that we have. If you look at behavior therapy, for example, it really boils down to the idea of face your fears, uh, that you overcome your fears by facing them. These are, these are not... Uh, terribly deep scientific insights that they are elaborations of uh, Western folk psychology. Some of them aren't, like um, psychoanalysis has more interesting aspects. Systemic theory uh, looks at power and relationships more broadly and looks at um, cultural influences. But most of the common ones, um, counseling, again, it's the idea that we need to externalize how we feel we need to um uh, it, it's sort of a a development of the confessional 
which is uh, um, so um, I, I look at these, uh, but then I also talk about how the mental health system and, and ADHD is a good example. You, you become in danger the longer you stay within a mental health system of getting trapped in its logic. Because, uh, for example, if you look at medication, once you start down the pathway of medication, your brain eventually adapts to that medication. So just like if you drink lots of alcohol every day, eventually you need to drink more to get the same feelings of being drunk, if that's what you're looking for. It's the same sort of concept. And so um, over time, you'll find that people who start stay longer and longer in the mental health system find that they need to start having more treatments. They get more drugs added in. They get the doses turned up. They may get more psychotherapy. Um, and your whole idea of yourself and how you function starts to revolve around a ongoing struggle between aspects of yourself that you've come to think of as somehow abnormal, disordered, dysfunctional, dysregulated. And this can set up a potentially lifelong struggle with trying to control these aspects of yourself. So I go through how that works and also give some tips about how people might find ways out of that. And also I have a chapter for parents, which gives some tips on simple ideas that uh, uh, relate to how you might deal with children or think about, not just deal, but think about, understand, conceptualize when you're worried about your child's emotional or behavioral well-being. And the other book that's um, just come out is, is a second edition of a book called A Straight Talking Intro Introduction to Children's Mental Health Problems. And, and that also has a, has a bit more about tips for parents and the sorts of common conditions. There is a lot of crossover between the two of them because they're both aimed at more of a general public to try and help people. That's great. Um, yeah. Uh, understand these these concepts well i don't know how you do all your work and write all these books and do the research and it sounds like in a uh, you really uh, dive deep you know and i and i appreciate that and while we could go on for quite a while i think we've touched upon a really uh, large amount of 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 uh parts of the adhd discussion and uh i just want to Thank you again for for your time and for uh, uh, giving us insights into the research you've seen and done. And um, so, Insane Medicine uh, is is the book we mentioned that's on you know uh, Madden America and Amazon. And I will put the links to the other to your other books as well in the show notes, so our listeners can can uh, dig in and and perhaps if they have time, do their own research. But I think there's a lot of value here today. So. Uh, really great, Sammy. Uh, I, I thank you so much for for coming on on this uh, podcast and for being part of our movement and the film. And uh, uh, this is very valuable, and I'm I'm inspired. So, but I, I I'm uh, I'm really appreciative of the fact that you're doing this, that you're doing the film, that you're trying to get this out to people. So at least there's something there that can help them 
get a more balanced view. Yeah, that, that's you're right. The word is balanced. Yeah, because it's it's really an incomplete narrative, um, and I think parents deserve to to see the full picture. Right. So thank you for that. I appreciate that, and I'm sure we'll do a follow up uh, sometime in the future. Uh, meanwhile, all the best, and thanks again for being on. Thank you very much. <laughs>